play the first Coast to Coast Pick 5, featuring a sequence from Gulfstream Park in Florida and Santa Anita Park in California every Saturday and Sunday. Both the $1 minimum and 15% takeout are very player-friendly. Players can bet on track or online, usually listed as a separate track in your ADW. Just look for Coast to Coast Pick 5 in the drop-down. If you play on First Bet or Express Bet, you can get a free $10 bet on the Coast to Coast Pick 5 on select days to participate. Do not forget to register for the promotion. Get the Pick 5 sequence, expert analysis, free pass performances, and more at InTheMoneyPodcast.com slash coast. And be sure to check the podcast we'll be doing every Saturday and Sunday for this new special bet. That URL once again, InTheMoneyPodcast.com slash coast. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I can get the year right now. I think I got that wrong on at least some file names earlier in the year. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornatel, coming to you from the Brooklyn Bunker once again. A little bit later in the show, Nick Tamaro is going to be here. We'll be looking at some of the three-year-old action, stakes action from last weekend recap of the Kentucky Derby future wager. But we start off with a special guest, a man who I resist bothering too often. I've, I've bothered him so much for a number of books, and he's given me such good stuff that I have gone away from my usual attitude of no good deed goes unpunished. And I usually leave him alone, except to maybe personally bug him for his opinion on a, on a baseball wager from uh, time to time. But he has recently appeared on these airwaves as a subject of one of the Marshall Graham interviews, an interview that left me wanting more. And then he asked me if he could come on the show. There's only one right answer to that question, because this man, and I'll date myself with a reference here, like E.F. Hutton before him, when he talks, people listen. I'm speaking of professional horse player, Maury Wolf. Maury, what's going on, my friend? It's a delight to talk to you, Pete. The introduction is uh, way over the top, but uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, hope all is well in Brooklyn. Yeah, things are good here. Getting ready for uh, you know this big Pegasus weekend. Getting ready to head down to Florida. Track we'll be discussing during the course of this uh, of this interview. And uh, excited for some NFL, and, and also excited to get serious about some uh, some baseball handicapping. I remember a time when I feel like. You you might have been making your your living betting horses, but I feel like you spent a lot of your free time on the baseball side of things. But from from what I gather, it's it's not as important to to you as it as it once was. No, but I I, I just love baseball, and uh, I it, it, it is the one sport that continues to delight me. And uh, you know, betting futures on baseball has been you know you get a, well the, the joy of betting futures is that. You bet it once and you get 162 games of action. <laughs> that makes complete sense to me. I've I've found those markets not unlike horse racing markets. They seem to get more and more difficult as time goes on. For you, in your evolution as a horse player, how would you describe your current um, state of, of affairs, of your betting business? I feel like when I interviewed you for the first time, and you're gonna, you might laugh at this. I, I think it was going on about 20 years ago now, Maury. 
I remember you talking about how much harder things had gotten then. I can I can only imagine how what the intervening couple of decades have done. It seems oh, like it, everything, it, yeah. it has been so much. It has gotten so much harder. It is um, mind boggling. Um, there's a, a wonderful book by Adam Kucharski called The Perfect Bet, in which he talks about the evolution of betting markets and how the effects of modeling and artificial intelligence and all of those things are combining in not just not just horse racing, but across all sports to make the betting markets vastly more efficient. And as you said, you've seen it in futures markets in baseball. Um, you see it, I imagine, in virtually every um, in every place that people can make a bet and can employ analytical tools. Um, and you see, of course, you see it in baseball front offices too. Um, the, you know, the edges that front offices might've had 20 years ago are all, those are, are long gone. And now it's just ever more on the uh, cutting edge. You have to be ever more on the cutting edge to succeed. And that's pretty much true of horse racing as well, that you, uh, that there, you know, if you go back and look at handicapping books that were written 50 years ago or whatever, like Ainsley's book or whatever, Andy's books, they're full of uh, advice, which was wonderful for the time, but that's about low-hanging fruit that is no longer available to anyone. What does a player do to try to evolve? Have you, one thing that came to mind, and it makes me think of the chess world, right? I'm sure you've read about uh you know, the, the latest developments in AI and how the, you know, the best computer can be, is going to be the best human every time. But the idea that a very good human and a very good computer together can still beat the best computer, potentially, that man plus machine idea that we've talked about with Tony Joe and others on these airwaves. Is that something that's appealed to you as a horse player? Have you thought about trying to use a, a similar grade of, of technology to upgrade your own play? Or have you found another way to continue to survive in these ever deepeningly difficult markets? Uh, I've found that basically it's it's um, become time to leave it to uh, people with a better skill set than mine to, uh, to establish the new, um, the new tools for wagering. Um, if I had life to live over again, I would have paid so much more attention in those computer classes, you know, in, <laughs> in the one or two computer classes. The day of myself, Peter, when we, we had, we used car, I, when I was in college, they were still using cards <laughs> and I didn't pay a lot of attention. And if I had it to do over again, my God, I would have paid a ton of attention because you know, the, the, the classic line now about, you know, people, the journalists learn how to code. Well, yeah, learn how to code. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's wonderful advice in just about any field. So what, what has been, you know, you've been hanging around though, as this era has progressed, have you doubled down on old school approaches? Like how have you been surviving? No, you survive by finding, um, you, Finding thing, trying to find things that are difficult to analyze by computer. Um, 
a computer isn't going to do trips. Um, they can hire people who can do trips for them, and they probably have. Yep. But a computer, but 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 essentially, you can still watch races and get um, and get something out of it. Something people, subjective. Yeah, for people who have the skill, um, and this is mostly on the horseman side. Nobody goes to the racetrack anymore, so to speak. Everyone is off-site. The ability to look at horses and know what you're looking if you know what you're looking at, that's a skill set now that is incredibly valuable because essentially nobody in the game is doing it. Um, and so that's a wonderful niche opportunity for people who spend their have spent their time on the physical, you know, basically with horses. And can look at horses and know what they're looking at, know if they're fit, know if there's a new injury, all of those kinds of things. That's not going to be in a model. Um, and that is a terrific opportunity for a certain type of person. Um, I spent my early years looking at a lot of horses, but I was no horseman. Um, for someone who is a horseman or a horsewoman, uh, that is a wonderful way to find bets that is outside the is basically outside the strengths of your competitors they Uh, are trying by the way you know you'll hear stories especially at like bigger meetings internationally that the biggest teams will have somebody whose job that is and they have they grade they basically will grade a horse's physicality on a whatever, I'm making this up now, but like a one to five scale and a few different categories. And somehow that information gets like sucked up into the model and we'll, we'll just, we'll ease a horse's price or, or tighten up a horse's price. But I mean, I take your point. If it's your special skill set, there's going to be times where that's just gives you an overwhelming intuition about what's going to happen that I would think would even trump in individual instances a sophisticated model attempting to incorporate the same information. But what really scares me about the the computer stuff in these markets is, you know, we know, we, we know they're trying to incorporate trips. They're trying to figure out what different trip notes mean mathematically at different points in races vis-a-vis the overall ability of the horse. And we know they're trying to do it in, in the paddock, but to your point, I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea. If you can specialize and have that as a skill, you're going to be able to do it so much better that you could still that you could still uh, gain gain an edge. Are there any other areas that pop to your mind that you feel like the human brain can do better than the computer brain at this point? Um, it's possible that if you really understand trainers, that you can find an advantage there's there's certain trainers who just point for certain meetings or at good are really good at certain things and if you can isolate that again you're you're probably going to do better in anything that you can isolate as a specific instance than a one size than the sort of one size fits all approach yeah. that the groups have you can't beat a computer trying to do what they're doing no, you have, you, have, you have no shot. I, I, in some sense, you know, there was the in in the original Ainsley or Dick Carter book. There was a line: "You can't beat a race, but you can beat the races." Now, I, I, I would argue it's kind of the reverse, the opposite. Yeah, yeah. You can't beat them in the races, 
but you can certainly beat them in a specific race. And that is, that is, that is more or less the opportunity set that is left is, is that sort of thing. The other, the other, the other sort of attractive circum, there are two other circumstances that strike me as really attractive. One is the gigantic days, triple crown, breeders cup, whatever the public money still dominates the market in those situations. And the public money is ill-informed. This is kind of proven every year when you look at a triple crown wind pool and you just, you don't see that pool any other time of the year. Um, you don't see pools so screamingly inefficient. Um, those pool, they may be inefficient at 10 minutes to post, but they're not inefficient when they go off here. They are ine- inefficient when they go off and uh, the computers those, can't bet enough. I mean, just to explain to people the well, difference being when well, there's the, that much liquidity, that's the meat on the bone that JK and I are often referencing where the computer can bet all it can eat and you, and it's still not going to do enough to correct, you know, uh, my boy Jack's price in the, in the Derby. It's the equivalent of the Super Bowl in football. No matter how much money wise guys bet, the public is just overwhelming the pool size. And so that the wise guys will have much less influence on the final price of a Super Bowl than they would of a game on a Wednesday, you know, of a Thursday night game in September. Um, And it's, it's just, these are, there aren't that many instances anymore where the public's money dominates the game, but that is a place that there are. The third place for people to play, and I mean, it's, it's one you're altogether familiar with, it's horse tournaments. Yeah. Um, horse tournaments are, uh, they're not immune from the effect of, especially the, the real money tournaments aren't immune from the effect that the groups have on prices. But what they are is another place where your competition is in the room, so to speak, or now online, and it's not um, it's not the top players in the world um, competing directly with you. You're just in, you know because your total. The only thing that matters is how your total compares to the other three hundred players. It's a different market from uh, from the paramutual. We should step back, Maury. We should step back for a minute because we had some of this off-air chatter that I think it'd be important to get on air here. And it's it really has to do with who those best players are, how much of the market that they that they represent. We've been talking about it kind of theoretically. Can you put any numbers to the effect that these best players have and, and how much more difficult the competition has gotten? Okay. The, my Horse racing does not publicize this information. In fact, the very much the opposite. But you can find some public information. And from the public information I've seen, using a number of uh, around 30%, maybe a little bigger, is the overall impact. 
but that's spread across pools and the impact is different in different pools. The more difficult the bet, it seems that the larger percentage of the betting pool is the what, what we refer to as the computer groups. There are probably about 15 to 20 of these would be my rough estimate. Um, and they're also tiered. There are um, two or three that are just gigantic. And they are, when, when people are screaming about the horse that goes eight to one in the gate, nine to two at the half, that's part of what they're doing, but that's actually only the visible part of what they're doing. The less visible part is in the what are called the blind pools, which are pools which the only information you have on them is how much is bet into them. Um, and these are, you know, in the vertical pools, these will be tries and superfectas and pentafectas. In the horizontal pools, they would be anything beyond a daily double, pick three, pick four, pick five, pick six. And the more complicated the wager, the bigger the advantage to people with programs that are act accurately calibrating the chances of all the participants. Uh, the reverse of that is that those are the pools that are going to be hardest for the general public to win at. Um, though, um, how much of those pools they are depends entirely on, um, on, 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 you know, whatever, whatever, you know, sort of the calculations that they're using are a really good way to see this yourself is just to turn on your computer screen and see how much the money moves in the last flash or two. You're not going to be moving a superfecta as an individual better um, trying to get your bet in the last minute because it's a complicated bet. You're going to be um, moving the pool. You're, you're going to be betting a lot of combinations if you can get that bet in with a computer to computer um, connection. And that's where that late money is coming from. Um, and if you observe this, it's just grown monumentally. Um, there are carryover giveaway bets where the late action, and by late, I'm talking about horses have started loading, where 40% of the pool will be bet as, they, as the load starts. Um, and that is, you know, that's, that is group play. Um, and, uh, the higher the percentage of a pool that is bet by groups, the more difficult it is going to be for the public. Um, there was a pool at Philadelphia park had a mandatory in January, where I think basically large bets comprised 70% of the pool. Um, now that's a very high and unusual percentage, but it gives you a, an idea of how much money is being bet um, by a small number of very skilled players. My gut was that the 30% estimate is, is low, honestly, at this point, especially in some of these 
in some of these pools. And, and I think it's worth pausing for a second on the mandatory payout specifically, because I remember a conversation you and I had when the, these jackpot bets first came in and I had the sort of master of the obvious idea. Well, we'll just ignore it every day, but the mandatory payout. And then when it's a positive expectation on the mandatory payout, we'll, we'll play it then and won't, doesn't like everybody win essentially. And I remember you saying to me at the time, you know, after they'd run one of these things, not so fast. And I remember the exact example you gave me was if the Powerball was positive expectation, would it be a good bet? The implied answer being not really, because when something is so hard to hit, when the degree of difficulty is so high, you can't necessarily call it a, a good bet, no matter what's happening with the with with the, the the quote unquote takeout expected takeout in that in that situation i can only imagine if you were cynical about these bets whenever that was 5 6 years ago you you must really have something to say about them now the data i've seen does not suggest that the public is um doing well in these bets understatement there i i sense some understatement yeah, the public is um, somehow the public is not uh, is, is more or less looking at um, while there's a theoretical while while you know this is now the constant um, the bet is the takeout is three percent or the bet is positive three percent or positive five percent and that's just arithmetic and the arithmetic is of course correct it's also irrelevant um, the question isn't what the theoretical takeout is. The question is how the money is being distributed. And if it's the equivalent of a poker game, it may have zero takeout, but if you're sitting down with six of the best poker players in the world, your take expected takeout isn't zero. Right. Your expected takeout is probably a hundred. <laughs> um, because in the end, they will probably take every dollar you come to the game with. Occasionally, you'll win. Sure, you have to. But the effective takeout is is certainly far higher than the theoretical takeout of zero. And that's the situation in mandatories. The Theoretically, they're good plays. In actuality, in considerable part because of how they are structured by the racetracks and also by the level of group participation, these are not good bets for the public. Um, the field size, the large field sizes work very much against the public because you just can't cover enough combinations. Um, there are just too many outcomes out. There's too much of the outcome space that the public will never get to. Now, you're going to get there with a large bankroll, and you're certainly going to get there with the kind of money I was describing in the Philadelphia, being bet into the Philadelphia Park Pick 5, and or, or parks now. I keep calling it Philadelphia Park. <laughs> um, but I'm just using them. There's, I'm using them as an example. They're, it's not just parks. It's just that was the last one of those that I happened to notice. Yes. Um, uh, but it, it, it's true of most of these bets that the um, the combination of a very large percentage of group activity 
And the racetracks making these bets as difficult as possible by choosing relatively random races with full fields um, really makes the public's job quite difficult. And the theoretical positive or barely negative bet turns into a bet that um, they do quite poorly at. Uh, it's, and while this is counterintuitive, the small, the smaller denomination actually works against the public. Yep. We talk about this a lot, but I'd love to hear your, uh, your rationale for why that is. I'll, I'll piggyback if I have anything additional. It's easier to get efficient. Yeah. In other words, the, if you, if your minimum is the typical bet size now is 20 cents. If your typical bet size is 20 cents, you can calibrate that bet beautifully. You can have a dollar 20 on one combination and a dollar 60 on another combination. And you can have 20 cents on a monumentally long combination that nobody in the world um, would normally get to, you know, perhaps a, uh, you know, a, a random ticket uh, issued by um, a machine just, you know, picking numbers at random or something. But people who are actually handicapping the event are highly unlikely to get to those remote outcomes. But if you're betting a lot of money, you've got a good chance of getting to that remote outcome for 20 cents because that's sort of the, you can cover all of that space. Right. Uh, you can almost, pl- I mean, this is an exaggeration. You probably have to X out a, a certain amount of horses. But some of these, the, the way they pay, it's it feels like somebody's able to bet all, 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 and then maybe just X out the most 10% or 15% of the remotely impossible outcomes and basically have some combination of everything else. That's what it feels like to me. Well, I mean, I- essentially, if the expected pool is $10 million, you can justify playing on a 20 cent ticket, certainly out to 20 or 30 million to one. Um, I ten to the one to the sixth is a million to one, so that should give you an idea of where twenty to one, twenty million to one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty far out. Um, you get pretty good coverage um, if you're betting you know, half a million dollars into these things, as indeed people are. Um, and if the racetrack constructs its bet in such a way as to make those outcomes more plausible, unsurprisingly, that's not going to be good for the public. And there are racetracks out there that are absolutely constructing their mandatory distributions in such a way as to at least give the best opportunity for that kind of outcome. And why are the tracks doing this? Why do, Why would the tracks be invested in giving these players who already have an information advantage, a technology advantage, this kind of structural, um, whatever you want to call it, betting advantage at the expense of the core customer? Because they bet a lot. Just, they'd maybe yeah. describe it as catering to their best customers or something? Yeah, they, they bet a lot. Um, it's not that, you know, the person with the best seats at games is 
going to be the regular customer with a lot of money. In other words, why are those particular people in the best seats for the World Series? Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, that's the way the world works. The corporate sponsorship pays off, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. Uh, money talks. Um, Let's talk about the marketing of these bets, because I know that's something that you have an opinion on. And, you know, I'll admit, um, you know, we promote a lot of mandatory payouts. And and while I, I, mean, I agree with everything you're saying about the degree of difficulty, I still feel like the the horse player in me, if I've got three strong opinions, I'm going to get I'm going to give it a go. Like I'm going to I'm going to say, while I recognize what you're saying is is correct. I, I'm I'm going to be too arrogant and and still want to go in there even if I'm tilting uh, at at a windmill. I have gotten to a point where I will no longer. In the early days, I mean, I was playing these things by rote, and I had a, that little lucky. I think had a little success early on that fueled my continuing to do that. Yeah, my opinions evolve now. Where I you know I feel like I really need an opinion. Obviously, you know I'm saying it's the, there's conflict of interest in me even talking about this because we're literally getting paid to promote the mandatory days. We have avoided um, any sort of deals where we have to promote the non-mandatory payout days. That was a, a, a bridge too far for me, even as a, a horse racing marketing guy, but the tracks themselves, uh, you know, they put a lot of energy into promoting these wagers. And, and, you know, uh, I, I think you're making a case that makes it a little bit sound like it, it's leading in these instances their maybe not their best customer, but their core customer uh, to slaughter. I think of it as a reverse Robin Hood. That's kind of the marketing approach. <laughs> um, they the, the promotion of these jackpot mandatories is disgraceful. Um, the take out on those bets is approaching 50%. Uh, on the non-mandy days. Of, on the non-mandatory days. The, uh, the racetracks will massage those as well by doing exactly the opposite of what they're doing on the mandatories. Um, you know, sort of using shorter fields to guarantee that the bets are literally impossible to hit. Um by which I mean there can actually be no winning tickets because there are no tickets purchased in the entire bet where on, on certain days which have a single ticket outcome. These are, uh, and when you, but obviously if you know if the track's offering a bunch of six horse fields, the chances of there you getting the only ticket are in the stratosphere. Right. Um, I am quite uncomfortable with the way those bets have been promoted. And I'm even more uncomfortable with something which used to be the case, but is much less so now, where there would be sort of surprise single ticket bets where people wouldn't discover they were single ticket bets until after the carryover had gotten high and they suddenly hit the pick five and discovered that it still carried. Um, yeah, the, 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 the pick five is a carryover bet, a single ticket carryover bet is obnoxious. <laughs> um, several tracks have that. I believe there was somebody who actually had a carryover pick four 
well, if you want to do that, why not just have a carryover show bet? <laughs> um, uh, if, if the object is just to take money from the public, why not you know, just take it to its logical extreme? Uh, if most of these carryover pick fives end up you know, going, uh, going for a long period of time because it's very difficult to have an only ticket on a pick five. Just notice in, in sort of in real pick fives, how infrequently you see carryovers, the difference between zero and one isn't that significant in this regard. So that's a pretty good proxy for what your chances are of, you know, running into a single ticket um, pick five outcome. Uh, it's good for the tracks. They can basically continually boast of a high carryover bet. And then when they give it away, they're going to get um, very substantial, you know, five, six times the carryover bet into it. And so it's in that way, a good business for the racetracks because it gives them something to promote a high carryover, even though it's never, you know, it's fake, extremely unlikely to be hit. Yeah. And then the mandatory, which, um, really boosts handle. So that's why racetracks are offering that. A better question is why are people betting on it? And I have no good answer <laughs> for that. Um, it's not good. It's not good. It doesn't, when we try to make the cases of, you know, the, we, we try to make cases for player friendly bets. It, it, it hurts us when, when so much money is still getting bet into, uh, into these non, especially into these non carryover days. But that's another, that's another question. I mean, there's a certain segment. There is a certain segment of horse players who will, who will, you know, take the worst or are happy to take the worst of it. But the problem is you, you're still gonna, you know, to get back to your, your poker analogy they're they're still leaving with nothing. And then, and then they're going to, you know, at some point go away. It's very, it's very attritional. Like even if you don't have any idea what takeout is and you're willing to take the terrible terms of, that carryover pick five, you're still, you're going to not have as good of an experience, obviously, and you're going to run out of money a lot faster. So I still think even though the track could say, well, they bet it. So I've got to run it. You know, I'm sure we could hear racetrack executives saying that um, you're still not handling your customers correctly. And for the long-term health of your business, not next quarter, but next two years, next five years, you're still hurting yourself, even if you're making more money today. That would be a point I would like for racetrack executives to hear. And one that I imagine you'll have some sympathy for. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard to find too many people in horse racing with five-year time horizons. Now. Right. Um, right. And so there, there really is, you know, the main concern right now is for uh, tomorrow, today and tomorrow. And uh, what happens six months from now just isn't that important. Uh, you know, not, I'm not talking about for the Derby or something like that, but I'm just talking as a general proposition on how horse racing um, is is operated. And so, yeah, in the short term, these bets are defensible. Um, in the long term, it's what you what you suggest is happening. And while horse racing loves to brag about its handle numbers uh it's again these are nominal dollars in a world which we know right now has significant inflation has in the past had significant inflation 
So the, the fact that they're broadcasting high handle numbers doesn't really tell you anything. The other aspect of this is that handle is the wrong metric. Um, and horse racing is pretty unique in, um, in talking about that. The, 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 the right metric is revenue. And revenue in horse racing has been declining for quite some time because the you have outlets now that are paying you know substantially less than the retail customer is paying so that horse racing in you know 50 years ago you were getting maybe 60 now you were getting uh, you know if your takeout was 17 19 25 to use sort of what the standard was then well that was what was you know that percentage to each pool was what was going to the racetrack every day now it's nowhere near like that and so while handle may be looking like it's relatively constant, the combination of inflation and much lower hold on the dollar's bet means that this industry is, is in significant decline. Down um, 48% in 20 years, according to a stat that Marshall Graham, fellow economist, uh, dropped at the Arizona Symposium when we were talking about these type of issues. 48%. And that's not even taking into account. That's just the handle. That's not even taking into account no, the fact that 30 to 40% is, is paying so little comparatively. Yes. Yeah. So this yeah. business is actually, by not really caring, essentially... The trade-off has been that, um, you know, the, the groups are the only thing that is keeping the handle number up, but the cost of that for the industry is that the regular customers are being um, churned through and discouraged and are, uh, seem to be leaving the market. Um, uh, the other thing I have in distribution now is vastly superior to what it was in the past. You can bet out of your house. You right. can um, bet on your phone. Uh, this is, you know, vastly, they made, betting has been made vastly easier, and yet the business continues to decline. And that is in large part because of the attrition of regular customers. Um, they've just found a better, they found more opportunities elsewhere. Um, you know, Never if you bet on yeah, if you bet on a football game, even if you're not a wise guy, your hold is probably, you know, you're probably looking at five or you know, five to six percent. Yep. Four and a half percent, of course, is the real takeout, but that's some of that money is going to be distributed to people who are better than you. Um, but it's still it's a it's still a coin flip decision. So you shouldn't be that much worse than um, you shouldn't do that much worse than the public. Uh, I mean, the, you know, than the overall um, public. And so that becomes a much more attractive bet. I mean, Frank Angst wrote a, 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 an article a few weeks ago where he had gotten the numbers on the, uh, I guess this is in the Kentucky Racing Commission report, of the effective takeout on people who go to the racetrack. And it's extraordinarily high and far higher than the takeout. And he compared it with what they pay, you know, what they're paying on um, historical horse racing machines. And it's like three times the, uh, two to three times what the very high historical horse racing takeout is. And 
Um, you know, on the long term, yeah, people are going to get tired of losing that much money. Um, and that's, you know, and theoretically, the customers racetracks should most want are the people in the facility. But those are the ones who are having the worst or perhaps the worst results, certainly terrible results. And just to underline that, the idea is that the track is making so much more money off of those customers, for one thing, because of the the so-called golden dollars, the money bet on track. But then to me, the other piece of it is that a racetrack, and if you're talking about a Keeneland especially, um, this is a breeding ground for potential annuities to the sport. People like you, Maury, people like uh, Mike Baloney. I mean, look, I mean, JK and I, you could include us, but you know, nowhere near at the level of a handle of, of you guys in a lifetime. But the idea is if you make a fan for life of horse racing, especially somebody who can do it for part of their living, the industry is going to make six figures off that person potentially for life. <laughs> Why <laughs> wouldn't the resources be put into trying to make that magic happen more? Uh, because it's a lot easier to get 20, you know, if you could get 20 guys betting what those guys are betting, that's a lot, you know, that, that, that's a lot easier than creating a generation of horse players. Um, and that's what has happened. Um, and you know, racetracks are basically catering to those small, small select group of betters. And they really aren't worried about the long-term consequences of, uh, you know, of, of gradual attrition of their regular customer base. And uh, it's, um, you mentioned Keeneland. Uh, And again, this would be a really interesting thing for people to do. If you want to understand the game, do the following this upcoming Keeneland in April, just take a, just write down how much money is bet when the horses are loaded in the gate by pool and then see how much money has been bet when they cross the finish line. And that will give you a sense of the level of betting by a very small number of people. And those people aren't in it for their health. Um, these are uh, these are people who are, as I said, the best at what they do in the world, and um, and Keeneland last the 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 last meeting at Keeneland it was just to me it was mind boggling how much um, you know how much late action there was at Keeneland, particularly in the more difficult pools was just uh, eye-opening um and you have to um you know there, there's uh you know this there's there's this sort of egotistical feeling, well i'm as good as they are no you're not <laughs> whatever you are no you're not <laughs> it's um, hard not to take this personally more no i'm kidding no i know i know yeah, what you're saying um, but i do yeah. want i do want to this is a good pivot point i think to, you know, we've, we've laid out the problems and it's worth spending the time that we've spent laying out these problems. Um, but 
look, there are, I don't know if there's a solution like, oh, this is definitely the answer, but there are strategies. Now you talked about some, you know, potential handicapping form study type solutions. But, you know, when we talked about the show off air, you, you specifically said that your message has to do with where and what you bet is as important as who you bet. And I want to get to that piece of the conversation now. Where do you feel like um, and what do you feel like are, are the places where are li- very specifically our listeners who are, you know, passionate racing fans, some of them bet an awful lot of money. Um, some of them just love the game and want their dollar to go farther. What would you tell them? You know, they're not giving it up. We love it. But where can we go to try to give ourselves the best possible solution in the modern world of horse racing? All right. There, there are three places that um, I'm going to specify here. There could very easily be more. These are just the three that occurred to me off the top of my head. Naira is conducting the most interesting experiment of its type um, and has been doing so for the last year and a half or two years. Naira is not allowing the groups into the wind, to the straight wagering pools in any of its races. It is not allowing them into the pick five and it is not allowing them into the pick six. Um, so the wind bet, the wind pool at Naira is essentially a pool where you're, it's like the old, it's the pool of 30 years ago where you're only playing against other betters that are more or less like you. Wind pools in general are where people should be spending more time in place and show as well, perhaps, um, especially in Kentucky where they changed the breakage laws, but wind pools are, uh, are, are good for two reasons. While, while it's quite dramatic and everybody yells and screams when a horse goes from eight to one to four to one or 12 to one to nine to one or whatever in the last flash, in fact, the, in fact, the groups bet as a percentage less in the wind pool and place and show pools than they do in the more complicated pools, because the more complicated the bet, the better, the more effective their strategies are. It's a lot easier for everybody to figure out, I like the five to win, than it is to construct a good superfecta ticket. Um, and the so playing the simpler pools is, um, is good, and playing them at Naira, where you don't have the competition of the groups, will be better for you. Yep. Um, the... I did a quick study of the late pick five versus the late pick four, which is a the, the reason for looking at that is because the groups are allowed in the pick four and they're not allowed in the pick five. And it's a good basis for comparison because four of the races are the same. And what I found is that even after you adjust for the higher takeout, in the pick five. And this was a quick study, not done the way I would like to do it, but it just, I wanted a quick answer. Um, the, um, even it, even account after you've accounted for the difference between a 24% takeout in the pick four 
and a 15% takeout in the pick five, there's still more money left for the um, essentially distributed to the public because the 24% takeout on the pick four is likely becoming higher as a result of group participation. And so betting the pick five at Naira, as opposed to every other pick five, the late pick five at Naira, is a wonderful betting situation. Similarly, when when the pick six carries, same rules apply. It's a 25% takeout on carry over pick sixes, but the um, the equity situation in that pick six is much more favorable to the public than it's going to be when you're dealing with a normal carryover pick six and a third or 40% of whatever or whatever of the money is coming in from the groups. So those, you know, in terms of where you should put your money, um, the Naira, those three Naira or those, that set of Naira pools is probably now the, um, is perhaps your best opportunity in horse racing. Um, and a 15% pick five and a 16% win pool is probably among the lower, um, it's not the lowest, but it is among the lower um, takeout rates available. Um, and so, so clearly those bets are bets that um, you know, are, 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 should be attractive to regular customers. I want to underline. I want to underline that point, though, that the the low takeout combined with game selection, combined with it's. I don't. I feel hard to say that there's no. I think there's the computer. I, I'm comfortable saying the computers do not have the same advantages in those pick five and pick six pools as opposed to saying that they're like not in them at all. I, I'm not sure if I'm right about that. That's just kind of how I want to phrase it, but. The key thing to me is the combination of game selection and takeout, as opposed to just focusing solely on takeout and not being concerned about the fact that 30 to 40% of the money might be those best players in the world. I would not advise regular players to com- to attempt to complete in pick five pools, assuming that they're playing a 14% game is in, in, in the first pool in California. Um, no, you're not. That's the takeout rate. Yep. Overall, that's not your takeout rate. Um, Do we uh, over push pick fives and pick sixes in general? I mean, I, I, I think you made a key point about the wind pool in New York. And I, and I do think a lot of the more casual audience is undercapitalized just to, to just because of the, the level of difficulty, even with the favorable economic terms. I've been trying to do more. You know, again, we often we get paid to cover pick fives and pick sixes. It's a logical way for the track to you want know, to promote one of its most popular pools. And I'm trying to more and more point out to people, hey, we're talking about the pick five and pick six. And if you've got strong opinions, by all means, play it. But, you know, if there's a chance to pick up, you know, some win bets along the way or doubles or, you know, wherever you feel like your strongest opinion is, I want people to think about, about going there. I mean, what advice would you have? I mean, like what, how capitalized do you need to be to where you're not taking a knife to a gunfight in a bet, like a pick five or a pick six. And, and how do you sort of compute that? You need to be very capitalized. Um, it's, um, I think the pick five pools have been really recklessly promoted by the industry. Um, uh, it's a pretty difficult bet. And the 
again, the more complicated the bet, the higher the rate of group participation. And so you were basically pushing people into bets where they're, you know, where they're suddenly in the most difficult competitive pools. And on top of that bankroll is an important factor. Um, I can't, you know, I, I, for, for most players, the win, win, yeah, the win pool is probably the, um, is probably the best place for them to put their money. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's that hard to construct doubles, but once you start going further out horizontally or vertically, um, the bets get much more difficult to construct and the quality of the competition gets, um, gets harder. And so you're asking for, you're asking for trouble. And, um, I, I, the wind pool is underrated as a, as a place to put your money. Sorry to make you go on that tangent, but I was, I, and I, and I, I just think it's, it's a complicated issue, the pick six and pick five in New York, because of that degree of difficulty, even with the low takeout, even with the computers not in there, but it's certainly an appealing option. If you're somebody who, you know, is capitalized to do it. And right. yeah. if bet writing is part of your skill set. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, you asked for three places. The, the, the second, the, perhaps the best bet in horse racing today is the straight pools in um, in the gigantic races, the Triple Crown, the Breeders' Cup. Um, the reason for that is that that is the one place in, um, in uh, that is left in horse racing where the public dominates every, the more intelligent money. And so you see every year you look at triple crown pools and you'll see horses with no chance and horses with a decent chance, both at 10 to one. Right. And and imagine how much, how exaggerated it's going to be this year after rich strike and underlay at 80 to one, you know, this was a horse that I think was about 200 to one in the international markets for the race. The, the, like no, no, there's, it feels like there's not going to be a long shot. There's not going to be any horses with public money coming in, not wanting to quote unquote, miss the boat. The favorite might, the, the longest price on the board might be 40 to one in the Derby this year. It wasn't, it didn't take a year. <laughs> it was the Preakness in the Belmont. Right. Right. Uh, you looked at the Preakness in the Belmont pools and if you've ever handicapped a horse race in your life, you said, what? <laughs> um, I can't remember it, who it was, but there was some absolutely absurd horse in the Preakness. I think it was one of those local horses that they just threw in. Yep. And the, you know, and the horse wasn't even the long, was not even the longest shot on the board. Um, and, Fenway or what? Uh, I, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> but I, know I, I can't like remember who it was, but I just remember being stunned <laughs> at, um, at this. And again, if you've got three or four horses bet really inappropriately, then that turns into an almost break-even pool. Um, and the wind, bet, the wind pool in the Derby is... Uh, a fantastic pool, and, and likewise the Preakness in Belmont. Um, uh, it's uh, you know it is the one you know it, it is a it remains a market 
dominated by the public. Now, the exotic pools are much more efficient. Um, and it, I think Rich Strike was also 200 to 1 in the exotic pools. Yes, that sounds right. Um, and it's a, so it's, a, it's only a wind pool phenomenon, wind play show. I, um, I don't pay much attention, but um, it, I don't know how many years ago, Bill Ziemba wrote up about um, you know the show pools of the Triple Crown, and it remains the case yep. um, that you just see uh, you know terrific um, you know terrific betting opportunities there. I mean, also the Breeders' Cup. I don't remember what um, the the place price on Flightline was this year, but it. Um, it was the same as the win, I think. Well, I think it was the same as the win, or well, very that, close. Because that might have been because of uh, our friend Drew and his uh, his eighty thousand. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that was it. That was part of it, but it, it it's also and it was also partly because a long shot ran second. Yeah, but this is not something that would happen on a Thursday. No. Um. Uh. So those are um, those are two of the things, and the third one is one near and dear to your heart, which is um you know we we have seen a proliferation of tournaments in this country um and tournaments are um very good situations in terms of takeout and you know very little of the money is taken out by the people running the tournaments now in the real money tournaments of course the takeout is um applied to all the bets that you make and so there is a takeout but it is a you know, it is a wonderful opportunity to have a much less competitive environment than you have every day at a rail you know, when you're betting at the windows. Um, so that that that's the third sort of that's the third place I would say off um, off the top of my head that people um, should be looking at. Now, again, tournaments are a capital thing, and if you're not well capitalized. You should be playing in tournaments, especially real money tournaments, that are comfortable for your capital. Um, in other words, if you don't feel like you can bet $500 a race, you shouldn't be playing in tournaments where they're requiring you to bet $500 a race. Because the tournaments are going to be won not by people betting $500, right. but by people betting twenty or 25000 Yes, And... So that isn't a good place for you. But there are real money tournaments where, where basically it's a $20 bet. And those are fine. Um, yeah, you can find that stuff online. There's low roller options at racetracks across the country with Santa Anita and Naira. And, and I'll make this offer to the listeners. You know, if you're interested in tournaments, I'm pretty sure there's a format out there for you. I'm happy if you reach out to me, either Twitter at Looms Boldly or through the contact page over on InTheMoneyPodcast.com. I'd love to help point you in a direction because you, you make a great point. I mean, I think for a big player, there's no doubt in my mind that the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, I think it's probably one of the great EV opportunities in gambling. And I'm almost surprised more advantage type players from other realms, Maury, haven't come around, put together a team of horse players to help them with the picks and maybe some of the betting strategy and just tried to get their money in the pot because you're do if you're willing to bet at all, your dollar is worth a whole lot more than a dollar in there. 
Conversely, however, uh, I, look, I don't discourage somebody from qualifying and betting what they were going to bet and having some fun. But if you're there and you're not willing to play to win, you're you're you know you're seeding a, a big part of that advantage. What what are your what are your thoughts on the BCBC in general? It's a fantastic tournament, but you have to be willing to as, you know, as Drew was in this situation. You have to be willing to bet a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but it's a fa- for for player. I, I think it's it and the other tournaments like it, and there are probably a dozen now. Um, are wonderful betting opportunities for um, uh, f- for people who are capitalized. Um, as I said, it, it it is kind of a test of betting courage. You have to, if you want to finish in the top flight in the tournament, you have to be willing to bet. You have to get you have you have to be fortunate enough to have your initial bankroll run up, and then you have to be willing to have an opinion. Um, and uh, I'm kind of in looking over the Breeders' Cup, which is the only one that makes the information public. Uh, in looking over the betting of people, I'm kind of surprised at how many of the players don't seem to understand that's what you have to do. And that just creates equity for the people who do understand that's what you have to do. And you're saying your, your comment, I'm surprised it hasn't happened. Well, I mean, the general rule in horse racing and in life is it will. (laughs) The plays being out there too, means that the blueprint is out there. You know what I mean? It's not some, it ain't some mystery when you look at the last four winners, you know? No, it's not. Um, and, uh, but it does take something, it's a gulp. It's a gulp point issue. Yes. Um, There are people who will get uncomfortable with that notion and others that aren't. And the people that are comfortable are going to do much better than the people who aren't comfortable. And, you know, what I'm saying is that for people who aren't comfortable betting that kind of money, they should probably try to situate themselves in lower stakes events. Yes. And there's plenty of them these days. And hopefully as we go forward, they're going to be a little bit more organized. You know, I I think that the tournament world and more, you're just making me realize this even more and more, they're just missing this huge opportunity to create more of a player friendly series. Obviously we do our horse player happy hour, which we we love and have fun with 20,000 added to the pot, 20 bucks a week. The house cut goes to, to charity. You know, I think that's a, obviously I'm self-promoting here, but that's a fun option. The, the, you know, Naira's program, obviously Santa Anita's program. There's uh, the, the, the great contest at Keeneland, like depending on what your level is there, there's probably an option out there for you. And I think you'd enjoy it more. I mean, there's the famous to get back to the BCBC. I mean, there's the famous conversation Matt Miller and Drew Coatney had at this point last year where Drew was sharing his results and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing as well as he had and he was, you know, disappointed. And Matt's advice to him was, you know, you should really put all the effort you're putting into this paramutual stuff into the tournament world, specifically the Breeders' Cup, if you're willing to play it strategically correctly. And, you know, the rest is 
the rest is history. So I, I think your point is very well taken there, Maury. I've kept you. I just looked at the time for the first time. We are we're over, which is not okay. a huge problem for me. Um, but I don't want to be selfish about your day. But I also want to give you the opportunity to bring up any other topics you have on your list. Uh, you know, messages out there that might help the players. That's pretty much. Uh, that's pretty much it. I. The, the bottom line is that horse racing has always been driven by who do you like? It's the, it's all, it's handicapping this, it's handicapping that. Doesn't, you're, you're not going to do any good in this world if you can't pick um, horses that are going to win and whatever. But just as important to your fate is going to be um, where you bet. And what you bet, what pools you bet in, what tracks you pick to win at, to bet in. That can be a function of takeout. It can be a function of, um, of field size. It can be, as in Naira's case, a function of um, some races, there's less competition than others. But you really need to pay a lot more attention to that. You need to understand that your um the pools are not all the same and that you really would like to be playing in pools that are easier for you to win in and try to avoid the pools that are harder for you to succeed at. Um, and that's, that, that's my message is, you know, where and what as well as who. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned field size again because it's another one of these things where we have to hold two thoughts in our mind at the same time. Are are big fields player friendly? And I think you made a good case when it comes to pick and bets, especially fives and sixes. The big fields can be the enemy of the small player. In the win pool, I feel like it's just the opposite. And I feel like I see way more inefficiencies, especially on a big day when you have big fields. And I would I assume you're telling people in the in the whips pools to gravitate towards those same bigger fields you might be wanting to avoid on a mandatory payout day. Absolutely. Um, just an anecdote. When Frank, again, this is going back a long, long time. Frank DeFrancis at some point it, um, expanded field sizes from 12 to 14. Uh, this was back in the day when he, my God, these days that would be two races. Um, but uh, when he did that, what I noticed was that even money shots stayed at even money. Instead, like 20 to one, you suddenly were looking up on a board where you would see 20 to one shots with a chance. People just couldn't factor in all 14 and they still, you know, the bet, the favorite people still bet the favorite, but the more complicated nature of going to 14 horses meant that horses got overlooked all the time. You know, you just look down at your paper and say that horse is 20, not unlike what sometimes happens in the breeders cup where you get these, um, you know, you get these full fields and, you'll be looking at horses with that ought to be, you feel like ought to be eight or 10 and they're 20 simply because the, the favorite continues to be short and something has to go up as a result 
of the increased number of horses. And what goes up is the prices of interesting longer. Uh, uh, I, th- I always thought that the prices of more interesting long shots go up the fuller the field. It's hard. To, look, in a six horse field, it's just hard to make a mistake. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to overlook anything in a six horse field. But the more horses you get, the more the chances are that um, decent horses are going to be available at, you know, sort of 20% higher or 30% higher prices than, um, than will be the case otherwise. I thought of one more I have to ask you, and it's about, we're going to go back to a pick five, pick six question. Is there, and it's sort of a two-parter, is there a sweet spot in the number of runners in a pick five or pick six sequence that would make you attracted to look extra at it? Or failing that, what are the factors that would make you in this day and age want to get involved in a pick five or pick six play? Um, well, a pick six play, it's the driver, of course, is, is what's the carryover. Um, um, one of the interesting things about Naira is that while the one-day carryovers are typically about break-even or even slightly negative equity bets. The two-day carryovers tend not to get enough action to um, to be negative. So the two-day carryover bets are actually interesting off the top just as positive equity. I dislike short fields in horizontal bets. Um, again, it's the same thing. They're just it's hard for there to be inefficiency in a pool where it's a string of six horse races. Um, it's no one's going to get overlooked as field size gets larger. It's easier to find inefficiency in those pools, but you've got to have opinions. Um, all is not an opinion. Uh, if you're betting an all and you're not, I'm not talking about a a completely calibrated bet where you've got 20 cents on this and, or, you know, 50 cents on this and a dollar on this and a dollar and a half. I'm talking about your typical better who's taking $200 or whatever and betting the pick five. All isn't an opinion. (laughs) If you're betting, if you, if you've got to bet an all, you probably shouldn't be in the bet. Um, uh, and so, you know, my, 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 my suggestion would be that at the very least you, you should love two races and you should have an opinion in the other races. Now that opinion could be, I like four horses or that opinion can be, that you put a, you know, that you mix and match so that you, um, you know, the AB, the ABC system, which I don't really like, but for this discussion works as a, um, um, as, as a frame of reference, you know, where you're using the C's with just your top horses and you're using the A's and B's with more combinations. Um, but if you, you know, if you're just like one horse and think you're going to write a pick five about around it, well, you know, if it's a long shot, you're probably just better off betting the win. 
Um, and uh, if it's a short price source, it's not, that's not, you know, having one opinion probably is, is, is simply not going to be enough. Um, yeah, too many people put together sloppy tickets that, um, you know, you'd just be better off um, just by your opinion and don't try to force opinions in, um, in other races. It's only logical. All right, I'm changing my content plan. We're going to release this as a separate show from Nick. We can't do a two-hour. We can't have a two-hour early week show. And I have really? one more question now that I have to ask you, or I'd be accused of a host fail. What is it you don't like about the ABC system that we frequently espouse on these airwaves? I think it's an oversimplification of what you need to do. I think that's fair. That's what I don't like. Um, and you're taking the ABC system and you're going into a pool where 35, 40, 40, whatever percent of the money is calibrated. Right. Um, and the idea that that, you know, that, that you're going to match up with that is, is, is wishful thinking. Um, uh, and it's, um, you know, that, that's what I don't like about it is that it's, it's just an oversimplification of a complicated process. And this again is reiterating what I've been saying to you. People don't, you know, you're competing against people who write perfect bets and you're not writing a perfect bet. And you probably can't write a perfect bet with what you, the tools you have. And so playing in, you know, playing in pools where you don't need to write perfect bets is a better place to play. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, and when you speak of calibration, just so people understand, that's the efficiency you were talking about beforehand, where you can have 20 cents on one combo, a dollar 20 on another, $15 on a third, you know, the kind of thing that with a computer, it's not hard at all to do with a computer, but you know, you need a program. Um, and this is the kind of stuff you're, you're, you're going yep. up against. I, you know, I still like it as a starting point. You know, we go through and I, I love to just start there and then try to use my opinion. Obviously I'm not doing it to nearly your, your advice to stay away probably still applies to me. I, I you know, I just can't, I have trouble now that I'm playing more for fun, especially Maury, as opposed to trying to have it be any part of my income. I, can't resist the allure of the big scores that come with those bets, you know, and that's, and that's why I, I should have my money tilted much more into win. I know I should. Um, but that, that, that hitting, especially in like, and I know you said you haven't really studied this bet to comment on it, but the coast to coast pick bets, C to C as it were, have these elements that I believe make them player friendly. I want to support it. I want to have fun. I want to try to make a score. And I also don't think there's as much computer money in those, though. You made a great point about a, a quick and dirty way to look will be look at the look at how much money's bet when they load. Look at how much is bet after. And maybe we can come up with a proxy for uh, for, for that amount that might may or may not be being bet by the computer wagers. But, you know, I think for a lot of the listeners, they can't give up. We can't give up on that idea of of, you know, that year making score. As long as it's fun, as long as is that's the key. The key word there is fun. You're supposed to have fun doing this. Um, and if it's, and look, if you want to take 
you're going to spend five, you know, the typical person who's doing okay in life is going to spend 500 or a thousand or whatever on things that they like. Yeah. And if one of the things that you like is, you know, vetting pick fives, you know, is vetting pick fives and taking a shot to hit a ticket for 10,000, what the heck? Right. Um, you know, but don't do that every day, but there's, you know, it's, you know, it's fine to take discretionary money and spend it having a good time. There's no difference between spending discretionary money on gambling or going to a, you know, going to a play or going to a concert or whatever. It's entertainment money. That's just fine. But if you're trying to do this in an efficient way, just understand that, um, yeah, you know, that that that's a more difficult way to um to 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 keep going at the racetrack. If you're you know if 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 you're losing too much and you want to straighten things out, um, that's a really good way to start is to simplify your betting. Uh, this is oh, by the way a really good exercise for people playing pick fives, and I'm stunned at how few people do it. Um, write down. Before the five races, what you expect the horses to go off at. Then see what they actually go off at. And realize that whatever betting advantage you have is going to be wiped out if one of the horses you think is going to be eight to one goes off at three to one and wins. Yeah. Um, that's you know, that's the real world of the bet five is you have to be right. Not just once you have to be right across a spectrum of races. And having done that, it's hard. The groups do it really well. It's hard for individuals to do it. Even when you're following the racetrack, um, uh, you know, we've got some really good morning line makers in this country. We've also got some really awful ones. Um, <laughs> I won't make you say who's who. <laughs> no, I think we but know. <laughs> even the really good ones struggle with this. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. And, uh, and it's just, I mean, having been enough horizontals in my life, um, you know, it's basically they hang up a result and you just look and say, I'm dead. Um, <laughs> uh, uh yeah it's hard uh we've covered so much ground you're the man who told me you can't stand 90 minute podcast so i gotta get you out of here before we get to nine oh, yeah, I'm, I'm counting on you to edit it <laughs> you give you have way too much faith in me my friend we're we're going straight to we're pretty much going straight to air here with this thing hey, just, just cut out the useless 50 minutes and you'll probably have 20 minutes or 30 minutes of <laughs> Really, I can't thank you enough for this. Not only was the info great, but I really appreciate you volunteering and really, you know, having the players back in a way to want to share this info. And it it dovetails very much with a lot of the stuff Marshall was talking about out at Arizona. Some of it flies against the interest of uh, some of the stuff we do here on the network, but that's fine. I want people to have all the info and and to make the best decisions for them. That's what it's all about. And I'll reiterate that offer one more time for players interested in tournaments 
to reach out. And I would love to try to uh, give you a guiding hand as far as where I think it makes sense to play or not play at Looms Boldly on Twitter or the contact page through inthemoneypodcast.com. That's going to do it. We'll thank Maury for this tour de force performance once again. We'll thank our founding partners, including 10 Strike Racing and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. But most of all, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge champion, Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos!